least haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Well, what is the truth about the nativity? Well, I'll read you a little excerpt from this book on page 69. The truth of the nativity. The story of the first Christmas is so beloved that singers and storytellers across the centuries have embellished and elaborated and mythologized the story in celebration. However, now most people don't know which details are biblical and which are fabricated. People usually imagine the manger scene with snow, singing angels, many worshipers, a little drummer boy. But you know what? None of that is found in the biblical account. Christmas has become the product of an odd mixture of pagan ideas, superstition, fanciful legends, and just plain ignorance. Let's try to sort it out. The place to begin is God's word, the Bible. Here we find not only the source of the original account of Christmas, but also God's commentary on it. We can't know Jesus if we don't understand that he is real. The story of his birth is no allegory. We dare not romanticize it or settle for a fanciful legend that renders the whole story meaningless. Mary and Joseph were real people. Their dilemma on finding no one at the inn surely was as frightening for them as it would be for you or for me. The manger in which Jesus, Mary laid Jesus must have reeked of animal smells. So did the shepherds in all probability. That first Christmas was anything but picturesque. But that makes it all the more wondrous, doesn't it? That baby in the manger is God, Emmanuel. That's the heart and the soul of the Christmas message. There weren't many worshipers around the original manger, only a handful of shepherds. But one day, one day every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Those who doubt him, those who are his enemies, and those who merely ignore him. All will one day bow, too, even if it be in judgment. How much better to honor him now with the worship he deserves. That's what Christmas ought to inspire. Why God Sent Him. This is page 107 to 109. On that very Christmas, earth was oblivious to all that was happening, but heaven wasn't. The holy angels were waiting in anticipation to break forth in praise and worship and adoration at the birth of the newborn child. This child's birth meant deliverance for mankind. The angel told Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus knew that to do that, he would have to die. The important issue of Christmas is not so much that Jesus came, but why he came. There was no salvation in his birth, nor did the sinless way that he lived his life have any redemptive force of its own. His example, flawless as it was, could not rescue us from our sins. Even his teaching, the greatest truths ever revealed, could not save us. There was a price to be paid for our sins. 
Someone had to die. Only Jesus could do it. Hebrews gives us a remarkable look at the heart of the Savior before his birth. He knew he was entering the world to be the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin. His body had been divinely prepared by God specifically for that purpose. Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world, and he knew it. Moreover, he was doing it willingly. That was the whole point of the incarnation. Jesus came to earth to reveal God to mankind. He came to teach truth. He came to fulfill the law. He came to offer his kingdom. He came to show us how to live. He came to reveal God's glory or God's love. He came to bring peace. He came to heal the sick. He came to minister to the needy. But all those reasons are incidental to his ultimate purpose. He could have done all of them without being born as a human. He could have simply appeared like the angel of the Lord often did in the Old Testament and accomplished everything in the above list without literally becoming a man. But he had one more reason for coming. He came to die. Here's a side to the Christmas story that, is, that isn't often told. Those soft little hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit and Mary's womb were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day walk up a hill, dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. That tender body warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling cloths, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. Don't think I'm trying to put a damper on your Christmas spirit. Far from it. For Jesus' death, though devised and carried out by men with evil intentions, was not a tragedy. In fact, it represents the greatest victory over evil anyone has ever accomplished. There are several reasons for that, all summed up in Hebrews. So now we'll go to page 9, which is the Incarnation. Christmas is not about the Savior's infancy. It is about his deity. The humble birth of Jesus Christ was never intended to be a facade to conceal the reality that God was being born into the world. No one can really fathom what it means for God to be born in a manger. How does one explain the Almighty stooping to become a tiny infant? It was the greatest condescension the world has ever known or ever will know. Our minds cannot begin to understand what was in God's becoming a man. We will never comprehend why he was infinitely rich. He who was infinitely rich would become poor, assume a human nature, and enter into a world he knew would reject him and kill him. Nor can anyone explain how God could become a baby, yet he did. Without forsaking his divine nature or diminishing his deity in any sense, he was born into our world 
as a tiny infant. People often ask if I think he cried or if he needed the normal care and feeding one would give to any other baby. Of course he did. He was fully human with all the needs and emotions that are common to every human. Yet, he was also fully God, all wise and all powerful. How can both be true? I don't know, but the Bible clearly teaches that it is so. In some sense, Jesus voluntarily suspended the full application of his divine attributes. He didn't give up being God, but he willingly set aside the independent use of the privileges and powers that were his as God. He chose to subjugate his will to his Father's will through all that he remained fully God. For nearly 2,000 years, debate has been raging about who Jesus really is. Cults and skeptics have offered various explanations. They'll say he is one of many gods, a created being, a prophet, and so on. The common thread of all such theories is that they make Jesus less than God. But let the Bible speak for itself. John's gospel begins with a clear statement that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Who is the word spoken of in these verses? Well, verse 14 removes any doubt. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we'll start at page 86. People who missed Christmas. Nearly everyone missed that first Christmas. Like people today, they were busy, consumed with all kinds of things. Some important, some not. But nearly everyone missed Christ. The similarities between their world and ours is striking. Every one of those people has a counterpart in modern society. We'll go to Herod. Herod pretended he wanted to worship Jesus Christ, but he was fearful of this one who was called king of the Jews. He didn't want any competition for his throne. His supremacy was in jeopardy. Today, many people won't allow anything to interfere with their career, position, power, ambition, plans, or lifestyle. They are not about to let someone else be king of their lives. They see Jesus as a threat, and so they miss Christmas. People don't mind taking time off work to commemorate Jesus' birth. 
They will even embrace him as a resource when they get in trouble. They might gladly accept him as a spiritual benefactor. They are even willing to add him to their lives and call themselves Christians, but not if he insists on being king. They are as fearful and as jealous of losing their own self-determination as Herod was of losing his throne. They will guard at all costs their own priorities, values, and morals. The world is full of people who cry out, We don't want this man to reign over us. People want to chart their own destinies, and so we have a world of kings and queens who are not about to bow to Jesus Christ. Such people are governed by the same kind of jealous fear that drove Herod. Like him, they miss Christmas. Page 91, the people of Nazareth. Although Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth and lived his perfect life before all the people there, yet they completely overlooked him. After years of living among these people, Jesus revealed to the Nazareans that he was the Messiah. And what was their reaction? They tried to throw him off a cliff. That's what I call missing Christmas. The people of Nazareth, who should have known him better than anyone, had no idea who he really was. In Mark, it says, even Jesus wondered at their unbelief. What was their problem? Familiarity? They knew him so well they couldn't believe he was anyone special. Um, familiarity mixed with unbelief is a deadly thing perhaps the most tragic sin of all is the unbelief of a person who has heard all the sermons sat through all the bible studies lessons and learned all the christmas stories but who still rejects christ there is no gospel no good news For such a person, because he already knows and rejects the truth that could set him free. What a sad way to miss Christmas. Page 88. The religious leaders. The whole group of people who miss Christmas is mentioned in Matthew's account of Herod's treachery. There are the religious leaders. They knew exactly where Christ was to be born. But they never bothered to walk the two miles to Bethlehem to find out for themselves if Messiah had indeed been born. Why did the religious leaders miss Christmas? Indifference? The religious leaders had all the facts. They just didn't care. They were self-righteous. They kept the law. They believed they were already all that God could ever ask of them. Indifference is a profound sin against Christ. Sadly, it is one of the most common reactions to him. It is typical of religious people who don't think they need a savior. Such people think they're all right just the way they are. That is a dangerous attitude. Jesus' primary ministry was to people who had problems and knew it. He said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, those who are indifferent, who don't realize they are sinners, cannot respond to his call. There may, in fact, be more people in the United States who ignore Christ because they don't understand their need for salvation. They don't openly oppose him. They just ignore him. 
they don't care about the remedy because they don't believe they have the disease. Such people miss Christmas. Page 89, The Inhabitants of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is within easy walking distance of Jerusalem, and Jesus' birth was a fulfillment of all the nation had hoped for, but the entire city missed it. Why? Because they were so busy with religious ritual that they missed the reality. They had um, abandoned the heart of their faith. Jesus didn't fit their system. They looked for a Messiah who would be a conquering hero, not a baby in a manger. They hoped for a leader who would support their religious system. But Jesus opposed everything it stood for. People like that are the hardest to reach with the good news of salvation. They are so determined to earn their own salvation, to prove they can be righteous on their own, that they cannot see the depth of their spiritual poverty. Religion can be a deadly trap. Rituals and rules enable people to feel spiritual when they are not. Religious activity is not synonymous with genuine righteousness. Religion will damn people to hell as surely as immorality. In fact, Scripture tells us as Satan's ultimate trick is to disguise himself as an angel of light. And so he can use even religion to make people miss Christmas. We'll continue on on page 90. The Romans. Jesus was born in the heyday of the Roman Empire. Roman soldiers must have been everywhere in Bethlehem and the surrounding area, overseeing the census, registering people, and keeping order. Yet they missed Jesus' birth. Why? Idolatry? They had their own gods. They were even willing to let their emperor pretend to be God. Christ did not fit into their pantheon. Paganism has a strong grip on our world today, and millions miss Christmas because of it. I'm not talking only about the dark paganism where Christ is unknown and where Christmas is unheard of. There's a subtler form of idolatry. Most people in North America don't worship carved idols or follow demonic superstition like the Romans did. But they, nevertheless, worship false gods. Some people worship money. Others worship sex. I know people who worship cars, boats, houses, power, prestige, popularity, and fame. Those things are pagan gods. Modern idolatry is selfishness and materialism. If you worship these things, you'll miss Christmas. Page 86, the innkeeper. Scripture doesn't specifically mention him, but that night in Bethlehem, an innkeeper was confronted by a man and his pregnant wife. Not only did he turn Mary and Joseph away, but he apparently didn't even call for anyone to help the young mother about to give birth. The Son of God might have been born on his property, but He missed Christmas because he was so preoccupied. There is no indication that he was a hostile or even unsympathetic. He was just busy. 
That's all. Millions of people today are consumed with activity, not necessarily sinful activity, just things that keep them busy. At Christmas, people are especially busy shopping, banquets, uh, parties, concerts, school activities, and other things all compete for attention. And in the clutter of activity, many preoccupied people miss the Son of God. Wise Men Do Not Miss Christmas, page 83 through 85. It is significant that the Magi worshipped when they found Jesus. Whatever their motives at the start of the journey, when they saw Jesus, they fell to the ground and worshipped him. God in his grace opened their eyes to something his own people did not see, that Jesus was God in human form. From this response, it appears that they were converts and thus became the earliest Gentiles believers in Christ. The gifts of the Magi had special significance. Gold and frankincense would be typical gifts for a king. Gold, the most precious metal then known to man, was a common symbol of royalty from the earliest time and remains so today. Frankincense, an expensive fragrance, had special significance in Old Testament worship. It was often sprinkled on offerings in the temple. The frankincense may therefore have had additional meaning in signifying Jesus' deity. Myrrh, on the other hand, was an unusual gift for a newborn king. It was a substance used in embalming the dead. Mixed with wine, it had a aesthetic effect. When Jesus was crucified, he was offered myrrh and wine mixture, but he refused it. The gift of myrrh therefore seems to foreshadow Jesus' suffering and death. There's no indication that the Magi foresaw the details of this, but it is likely that just as God had guided the Magi to the infant Jesus, he also guided them in the selection of gifts, so that the combination of the gifts they brought would testify to the new king's royalty, his deity, and his death on behalf of humanity. Wise men still seek him, the familiar phrase says. It's true. In all the world, there are only two kinds of people, those who are fools and those who are wise. Herod typifies one brand of fool, someone who overtly rejects the Savior. The Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders who counseled Herod were fools of a different kind. They didn't hate Jesus. They They just didn't care about him. They ignored him. They were too busy and too wrapped up in themselves to bother with him, just like most people today. The Magi, on the other hand, were true wise men. It wasn't convenient for them to come to Jesus, but they came anyway. Although it meant great sacrifice for them, they doggedly pursued until they found him. They typify every true wise man and woman who has ever lived. In Christ are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. May you truly be wise. Page 93. Perhaps you've been missing Christmas. You may receive presents, eat big dinners, and decorate a tree, but you know in your heart that you are no different from the innkeeper, Herod, the religious leaders, the people of Jerusalem, 
the Romans, or the citizens of Nazareth. You are missing the reality of Christmas. You don't have to miss another one. Turn from your sin and unbelief and receive Christ as Lord and God. He will forgive your sins, change your life, and give you the greatest Christmas gift anyone can receive himself. Don't miss Christmas this year. The Gift of God, page 118. Christmas is, first of all, a celebration of God's love toward man. The babe in the manger is more than just a tender child. He is the image of God, the premier one. He took on a body of human flesh so that he might bear in that body the sins of the world. He made possible the gift of God, eternal life. That is the sum of the Christian message. Don't get lost in the scope of it all. The incarnation of God in Jesus Christ is nothing if it is not personal. God loves you individually. He knows you better than you know yourself, yet he loves you. He entered this world, took on human flesh, and died on a cross to bear your sin, to pay the penalty for your iniquity, to remove your guilt. He did it so that you might enter into his presence. You must respond. He calls you to respond in faith. Turn from your sin to him. The Lord is not slow about his promise to judge the earth, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Believe him and trust him with your life. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. He who created everything will make you a new creature, remolded in his image, with new desires and a new heart. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Your life will never be the same. And this Christmas will truly be a time to celebrate. For you will have the greatest gift you can ever receive, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Take another look at the manger this Christmas. Look beyond the tender scene and see what Jesus himself knew even before he came, that he was born to die. He died for you. He bore your sin. He purchased your salvation. He guaranteed your sanctification, he destroyed your enemy, and he became a sympathetic high priest. Even as you hear this, he is seated next to the Father in heaven, ready to make intercession for you. This is God's gift to you. Have you enjoyed it so far? It's good, isn't it? Makes you kind of want to read the whole thing. But you know, there's another part to the story, and that is that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And we were given um, Advent books by the church, and I love that it focuses on the future, on what we look forward to as Christians because of what Christ accomplished for us. So I'm going to read to you from page 103, 
Jesus' kingly position. The story of Jesus will wonderfully conclude with his sovereign rule over earth and heaven. The story of redemption will culminate with great precision in the glorious reign of Jesus Christ. On David's throne over the nation of Israel, by which he will establish an earthly kingdom for a thousand years, followed by an eternal kingdom. When Jesus came to earth as an infant, he came with the proper credentials to rule. He offered his kingdom to his people, but they spurned it and they rejected it and executed him. However, Christ will return. He'll return in glory with omnipotence to establish his kingdom. The Old Testament writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit foresaw the coming of Christ's kingdom. For example, David writes, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I have declared the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, God told David that he would have a son who would reign forever. And that son was not Solomon, but Messiah, Jesus. The Bible promises that all believers will be part of God's kingdom, even though God will take us to heaven either through death or through the rapture. He will include us in the millennial kingdom. Others will be saved during the tribulation and become members of the kingdom. Christ will return. He will judge. He will kill the unbelieving and then establish his earthly kingdom of righteousness and peace and truth. I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? Righteousness and peace and truth. And once, oops, I got a sticker here. And once the final rebellion of Satan and his followers is crushed and they're sent to the lake of fire, the Lord will establish his eternal kingdom. The magnificent words of Handel's Hallelujah Chorus perfectly describe that conclusion. And he shall reign forever and ever. Now, as is the custom, we, we are going to play Handel's Messiah the Hallelujah Chorus, and I'd like you all to stand and just imagine that glorious day when Christ is going to return to the earth and he is going to establish his kingdom. And we all who are believers who have redeemed get to be part of it. Now that is an incredible gift. <laughs> 